Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good. Thank you for yeah being seated. We're glad you're here today. And uh, hey, there's just some really cool things going on. Um, our uh, senior high uh, team have been out at a retreat this weekend and I've gotten word that things have gone really really well um, the the cook chief cook and bottle washer one of our elders Tim Wilson said everything that was on the other side of the the curtain was going great they had a lot of food logistics um, challenges but God brought them through and we're we're very very grateful for that and I want to share some more good news with you I think it's good news it's something to celebrate um, two of our staff members are celebrating uh, employment anniversaries here. Uh, Linda DeBrow, who is part of our facilities team, is celebrating her 32nd anniversary on our staff. And we are so very, very grateful for Linda and the work she does to keep this place clean. And she serves in so many other ways. So, get, yeah, yeah. And so give her some love when you see her. Um, also, Susan Thomas, who is our office manager, and really the person kind of behind the scenes who keeps everything running. Just the truth. You need to say it out loud when you come across truth. And uh, we're so grateful for her. She's not here today, but she uh, is celebrating tomorrow her 28th employment anniversary. Um, and so we're, you can, we're, we're grateful for Susan. And so be, be, uh, when you have the opportunity, be, be sure to thank both of those ladies for just the sacrifice and service they have given this body of Christ for so many years. And um, I'm personally extremely grateful for it. And I know so many of you are are as well. Um, Also, just in the way of announcement, I will not be in the office this coming week. Um, I'm taking, uh, I'm doing a staycation. Uh, A couple weeks back, our son contacted us and uh, he is about to be reassigned from Richmond to Tucson. He's in the Air Force, for those of you who don't know. He's here today, but we're there in the corner. And um, he, uh, he, he contacted us and said, he didn't say it quite this way, but this is the way I interpreted it. Hey, Dad, you're getting old. Um, we know it. It shows. And uh, I'm going to come home for a week. And so, Dad, you got some of those projects around the house you can't do on your own anymore. Um, I'll be glad to, glad to help. So Taylor has come to help his old man out, and I'm grateful for that. We, we have lots of fun doing projects like that. So, um, so pray, pray for us. Pray for him because, you know, uh, I'm going to be bossy this week. No, I'm kidding. Uh, hey, if you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. We're continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon, greatest human talk, I believe, that was ever given. We've talked about that at, at, at great length, and it's been, it's been a great joy for me to walk through this with you. I, I, I've enjoyed sharing in this journey. But before we dive into the text today, I want to talk about three kind of sociological phenomenon, if you would, that are important for us to grab hold of. Uh, because it impacts what Jesus wants us to hear today, I think. And these are just true, whether you um, have read about them or not. Uh, they're, they're just some things um, that, that are true in our world today that you and I live under the weight of. First uh, kind of truth that's related to uh, a, a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Buckminster Fuller. Anybody know who Buckminster Fuller is? Okay? Uh, if You've probably seen... Uh, one of his creations, Buckminster Fuller, is uh, the architect, uh, design engineer, if you would, who is known for creating geodesic domes. So if you've ever been to Disney at Epcot, you've probably seen this. 
That's, that's one of his, that, that style of architecture, he's kind of, you know, told that he, he designed that, created that. But another thing, he, he was not only a great architect and design engineer, he went on to be a great kind of systems theorist. And one of the, one of the things he recognized and then pointed out to the world is something that he called the knowledge doubling curve. The knowledge doubling curve. And uh, he was talking about how long it takes for the cumulative knowledge of humanity to double. And there's a graph that's come up. There, there are several graphs that uh, people in our day kind of, you know, disagree a little bit, so there's some variations of that. But basically, Buckminster said that the human knowledge cumulatively doubled in the first 1900 years about every 400 years. That, that, that just, it, it doubled. By 1950, that knowledge was doubling every 20 years. By 1980, every 10 years. By 2020, every eight years. By 2017, every 13 months. And now IBM tells us that cumulative human knowledge doubles about every 12 hours. So before some of you lay down tonight, cumulative human knowledge would have done, you know, doubled uh, since you got up th th this morning. Now, here's how that impacts us. We have more information than we've ever had access to before. A second phenomenon, Thomas Friedman, um, in his book, best-selling book, it was entitled, Thank You for Being Late, he, he introduced a concept called the age of acceleration. The age of acceleration. And he shows that we're in a cultural moment where things have gone, moved so quickly, mostly because of technological advances. Things are moving at breakneck speed. And he was giving this lecture at the Brookings Institute, and he pointed out on this graph, and he showed how technology has increased so rapidly, and information uh, has increased so rapidly, that humanity has kind of lost the ability to kind of keep up with the pace of change. And so we all kind of feel it, and not only did all the information create what we know as the information age, this acceleration has created in so many people what has become the age of anxiety. And so th this is a second kind of phenomenal, you know, kind of perfect storm moment, and it's caused humanity, and uh, many of you feel this, you wake up stressed out and overtired, simply because of the pace of change. Last phenomenal cultural kind of phenomenon I, I want to point out uh, is from a guy by the name of Neil Postman. He wrote about this in his uh, great cultural commentary, Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a great book. It's not a Christian book, if you would, but uh, very insightful into um, our culture. And he kind of coined a phrase. Uh, it's entitled the information to action ratio. Information to action ratio. And this is what it causes. Um, our, our lives to look like. And, and this is what he, he kind of meant uh, about that. Let me read what he, what he says. He says, the tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought or sold, used as a form of entertainment, or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. It comes indiscriminately directed at no one in particular, disconnected from any real usefulness, we are glutted with information, drowning information, and have no control over it, and we don't know what to do with it. And so there's this, this kind of cultural overwhelming that kind of paralyzes us. Now, interesting to me that he points back, not to the computer to cause this, but the telegraph. 
And what he says was, for the first time in human history, news, and as we know, news is mostly bad news, news was able to travel around the world in seconds. Never had happened before. Uh, up until that time, most news that people got that was kind of current news happened in your town. It was you know, news that you were associated with. Um, it was news, you know, in your, in your town, and it could be a town of 100 or a town of 1,000. Uh, it, it just depends. Um, but, you know, when, when news happened, let, let's say something like this happened. Let's say Bill's barn burned, caught on fire and was burning. Okay, in our day, here's what people do. You know, they, they'd say, hashtag, no more barn burning. You know, we, something like this. Somebody start a nonprofit. Somebody put out, you know, tweets about this kind of thing. In, back in the day... What, what happened in the culture when word got out that Bob's barn was burning? Everybody would grab their bucket, fill their bucket with water, run down to Bob's barn, and put the fire out. And the next day, everybody would go back to Bob's place and build the barn again. You know, there was not this disassociation, if you would, of information, news, and our ability to act. But that is true in our day. Today we hear all sorts of news. We hear it all day long. Most of us have zero ability to really do anything about it. And so Postman, he goes on and he says this. He says, that phenomenon creates in the human psyche a state of being where we're used to hearing vast amounts of information. A lot of it bad, he points out. Then our hearts are moved by a lot of the information. And then we do absolutely nothing about it. And we're becoming people who are trained that way. And he calls this a low information to action ratio. It's just, it, it's just so low that our, we don't act on the information that we have access to because in so many ways we can't. So just kind of to recap what that does to us as human beings. Uh, first, we have all this information than we've ever had before. Second, we feel overwhelmed by the explosion and acceleration of all this information. And third, we're now so used to hearing this information that even when it moves our hearts, we're programmed to do nothing about it. But if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be his disciple, if you want to be apprenticed to Jesus so that you can experience and live in what he called the kingdom of God, what, what, what the reality of God and life with him is all about, then this low action to, you know, ratio to information kind of living, that won't do. That, that, that it won't cut it. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look back at Jesus' words on this matter and carefully examine the warning that he gives us today. Now, we, we've said as we've walked through this that kind of the the last three things that Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount are warnings. He ends this sermon with three warnings. And we're looking at the last of the three uh, warnings today. So I want us to go uh, line by line, if you would. Verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. What words? The Sermon on the Mount. What we know as Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What he, he's just been teaching on. And remember, the Sermon on, on, on the Mount is not all that Jesus has to say about life in the kingdom of heaven, but I think it's the, uh, the condensing of all of the best of the best of the best about how to have, how to live the good and beautiful life that God designed 
for his, his followers, for his, his creation to live in. And so Jesus goes on. Next line. Therefore, every, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Now that last phrase, puts them into pra- practice, is actually just one, one Greek word. It's the word poieo. Say it. It's a fun word. Poieo. Okay? That simply means puts them into practice. Now, it can get translated with a little bit of variation. It can mean does them or obeys them or, or you know, follows them. And this word poieo is used 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount. Tra- translated in a variety of ways. Matthew chapter 7, verse 18, we looked at a few weeks ago, says this. A healthy tree cannot bear, and that word is poieo, poieo cannot bear bad fruit. Healthy tree can't do that. Also in Matthew 7, 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does, poieo, the will of my Father. The one who does the will of my Father. This, this phrase here in, um, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, this word poieo, is an important word to grab hold of. And Jesus gives this warning as he closes uh, that information alone is not enough. And here's just the truth that I want to give you. Relate it to that. It is never enough to just hear Jesus' words. We must practice them over the course of our lifetime. We've got to practice them over the course of our lifetime. Now, things like, you know, taking notes on sermons and, you know, maybe studying and, and, and playing around with Greek and Hebrew words, that, that can be fun and all that, but it's not enough. That, that, that is never enough. At the end of the day, you have got to go out and poieo the teachings of Jesus, put them into practice in your life. You have to go do something about it. And and let me say this. I don't know of a better tool that you can have access to in our day, right here in our own church, than a tool that Cindy Shirley and Dean Enfinger kind of compiled and designed and developed for our church. They they got the, the, the main resource from another church. We were blessed to for them to access, give us access to that, but then it got kind of riverized, and uh, Dean and Cindy did all the work on that. The growth plan is a 90-day journey to help you know how to practice one teaching of Jesus. You can cycle this over and over again, but it's just, it's a plan. So here's what I would encourage you to do if you're saying, I want to poeo, I want to practice the teachings of Jesus in, in my life. I want to develop that habit in my life. Go to our website, Find the search bar, type in the word growth plan, and it will take you there. And then it will give you a step-by-step strategy for walking through that. We want to help you walk that out. And I would say, as best you can, follow the journey as as it's laid out. It can be be very, very helpful. Now, to drive his point home, this poeo point that Jesus is making, you've got to put it into practice. Jesus does what he always does. He tells a great little story to help us get the point. So in verse 24, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, poeos them, puts them into practice, it's like, here's the parable, it's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Rains came down, streams rose up, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not poieo them, does not put them in, into practice, doesn't live them out. It's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains came down, and here's what I want you to notice. The storm language is the same. 
rains came down, storm, streams rose up, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Great crash. Just want to do a little survey here. How many of you are old enough to remember flannel graph boards in Sunday school? Anybody remember those things? Yeah. Um, that, uh, if, what, what that tells me is that you probably maybe grew up with this teaching. And I want to say this about those of us who grew up with this teaching, having heard it probably very, very many times. I think right now in our day, you may be at a bit of a disadvantage than somebody hearing it for the very first time. Because while I don't necessarily believe that you know, familiarity breeds contempt, like they say, I do think that it can breed apathy. I, I do think it can breed uh, dull ears, that we don't hear things like we should. And this is, not, this is not Sunday school flannel graph board material. Jesus is trying to stop your heart. He's trying to arrest your soul in this because this is, this is stark. This is a, a, it's just a profound, weighty warning that Jesus is giving to those who were listening that day and to you as you listen today. It's about a parable of two home builders. The story is one is wise, one is foolish. Now, here, here's the interesting thing to me. The, the word translated wise here is phronemos, and uh, this, this word is pretty much translated as somebody who doesn't think well about things, somebody who's unthoughtful, somebody who's not smart, somebody who's unenlightened, in, 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 in they, they, they just don't know. And the word foolish is translated, many of you know this already, the Greek word moros, we get the word moron from it, but it can be translated as unintelligent or kind of thoughtless, uh, unenlightened. But in Jesus' worldview, here's something I think important to please grab hold of. These words are not just about mental states. When Jesus uses, in his worldview, these words foolish and wise, they are both mental and they are moral words. They're both mental and moral. I love the way uh, the New Testament scholar Dale Bruner puts it when he wrote about this. He says, Jesus does not contrast good and bad in this parable, but thoughtful and foolish. He says there is an intelligence in morality, and there is a morality in genuine intelligence. Now, while that idea needs to be recaptured in our day and our age, it's something we don't like to hear. Study after study after study in our day proves that human beings, us, we do not have 2020 vision when it comes to the reality that we find ourselves living in. See, not only have our bodies been corrupted by sin, but our minds have been corrupted by sin. We not only engage in moral, immoral actions, but we engage in immoral, immoral thinking. And one of the ways we see this playing out today, I think, is Christians in our day are getting caught up in all kinds of cultural and political flare-ups and, and are starting to believe lies to be truth, and they sacrifice their, their, their reputations, some of them, you know, their, their, their careers, but more importantly, they're sacrificing their witness, their testimony for Jesus. And they're not living the good life that Jesus wanted, the good and beautiful life of our Lord. It's not the kingdom way. But that's not new. In Jesus' day, it was kind of the same way. You know, there were people who didn't think well. There were some who did, called 
phronomos. They were, they were wise. The second kind of person, you know, moros, who, who was thought of as a fool. And that's, that's not something new in Jesus' day. Uh, it, that's been around ancient uh, Hebrew literature, wisdom literature. You go back to the book of Proverbs, and we read something like this in Proverbs 14, verse 1. It says, a wise woman builds her home, but a foolish woman tears it down with her own hand. There's that idea of a home again. This was, this was language that was prevalent in, in Hebrew wisdom literature. It was also kind of prevalent, if you would, in the language of, of Greek philosophy of that day. And here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is tapping in, into a kind of a current cultural conversation of his day. He's pointing some things out that are going on, happening both inside and outside of his own people group, out of inside and outside the people of God, the nation of Israel. And it was this idea, who is thoughtful and enlightened about best way to live life and, and who's not? And so he does this with this parable about two home builders or two kinds of homes. See, one of the things in Jesus' day that was true was your house was a kind of common metaphor for your life. Because houses in that day and houses in our day, a little bit of difference. In, in our day where we think of single family dwelling places, there were very few of those. Most of the dwelling places were multi-generational. You know, two, three generations lived in kind of the same house. Uh, the other thing that very seldom happened, they were very seldom bought or sold. Now, if you lived in the city of Jerusalem, sometimes houses were being bought and sold there. But for the most part, people lived out on ancestral land. And so when, you know, it was time for you to kind of start your own family household, you either moved into a dwelling that was already built or you just added on to your father's house. That was kind of the deal uh, back then. Um, a third kind of thing that's a little bit different from today is where our homes, for the most part, are kind of like where we go to rest and, you know, relax and get away from, from work maybe. You didn't do that in Jesus' day. Your home, your house was your place of business. You were a farmer, you kind of did business out of there. You were a fisherman, you kind of did business out of them. You know, it, th that, that was the way it was. So your house became a symbol for your whole life. And Jesus is tapping in to that knowledge. And Jesus says, the wise person, the smart, intelligible, thoughtful person builds their life, builds the house of their life on the bedrock of practicing his teachings that he just laid out in the sermon. A foolish person, not so sharp at life, not so much. You know, they, they, may, they may be somebody who, you know, hears all the teachings of Jesus, may like them, may, may not, you know, but just doesn't do anything about them. And here's one of the things fascinating to me. Jesus does not tell us why. Jesus doesn't tell us why one person does and one person doesn't. And I think that's brilliant because then all of us can put ourselves right into that storyline. You know, some people may say, well, you know, uh, Jesus, I'm too busy to apply your teaching because I'm in grad school or, you know, I got, I got, you know, four preschoolers in my house or I'm working three jobs or, you know, it takes me an hour and a half to get to work and back or um, maybe I'm just tired or worn out, just something. Or, or maybe they prefer a different kind of worldview, another, they like a better teacher than they think Jesus is. Jesus doesn't say specifically why. And so anybody can kind of plug themselves in and kind of ask the question, where am I, where am I in this? You know, am, am I on the wise end of things, the foolish end of things, or kind of somewhere in the middle? He kind of lets you fill in the blanks. Now, here's what I would call the, the terrifying part of this parable. Here, here's the terrifying part. In the short run, you can't tell the difference between 
those who are practicing the teachings of Jesus, house on the rock, and those who are not practicing the teachings of Jesus, house on the sand. From a distance, it looks like two pretty good houses, you know? You could both work the same job at the same corporation. Both could live in a nice neighborhood. Both of you may have a dog because nobody wise would have a cat. We know that. You know, maybe you both have your favorite coffee spot and on Saturdays you go to it, you walk your dog, you know, you just, you're doing you. And from a distance, you can't tell the difference in the house that's built from, by a wise person and, and one that's built by a foolish person until when? Until the flood comes. And that sorts things out pretty quickly. And please notice, it's not if the flood comes with Jesus, it's when the flood comes, Jesus says. You know, some of you are saying, okay, Joe, when are you going to get to the encouraging part? That's where I came from. Um, you know, that's, what, that's why I'm here. Um, that happens next week. Uh, Pastor Dean will be bringing the message next Sunday, so, so co come back for that. It's going to be good. See, Jesus, it, Jesus is brutally honest about about life it's one of my favorite things about jesus he's just so brutally honest i know some of you are saying joe you need more therapy which may be true but i love this about jesus he's just brutally honest he tells you you know whether you follow me or don't follow me life is going to be hard storms are going to come i think that's refreshing that jesus is so honest that that he says that you know those who build their lives practicing my way both of us are going to go through the flood it, it, it's just going to happen. And I do. I, I love that about Jesus. I find it refreshing. First of all, because it's honest. Secondly, because I think it just rings true to the human condition that this life is very often hard. It can be good, but it's very often hard. Third thing, kind of ironically here, that strikes me about this is if you go through life thinking it's always going to be easy and not hard, when hard happens, it's really hard. You know? It, 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 it's really hard. It, it, it even seems harder. But if you expect this life to be hard and you're living it out with Jesus, you, you know you're going to make your way through it. So I just love Jesus' honesty here, telling us that his way doesn't allow you to avoid hardships it just gives you a way through them and just while i'm there for a minute just let me give you another warning beware kind of thing beware of what's rampant in our day this this selfie healthy feel good prosperity gospel because it's spreading like wildfire please have your antenna up that is not the way of jesus Jesus tells us storms are going to come. It's, it's going to come. Jesus wants you to be wary of that. And when they come at times, it's going to shake your house. It's going to shake the foundation of your life. And one of the things it's going to do is going to reveal what your life is actually built on. And that's either going to be the best or worst moment of your life. That's just a, a, a truth here. In, in crisis... Discovering what your life is really built on will be the best or worst moment of your life. I, I had a lady stop me after the first service that, that told me, she said, that, that was like a word from God for me today. 
She said, I just realized just a, a, a few short weeks ago that what my life had been built on up until now. And it wasn't on this kingdom life of Jesus. And see, if, if your life is built on something other than Jesus, if it's built on greed or, you know, materialism or competition or if it's the, you know, to win, to get, get ahead no matter the cost, if it's built on sex or, 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 or beauty or your appearance or, or whatever, if it's built on popularity, how many people you got following you, you know, if it's built on, you know, Christ, hedon, if it's built on hedonism, you know, this, this pleasure built... I just want to travel and see the world, go anywhere, do it. If it's built on anything other than Jesus and practicing his way to be human, Jesus says that there's going to come, when that flood comes, there's going to be this crash, and it's going to, re it's going to reveal. It's going to reveal what your life is built on. And verse 27 ends this way. And it fell with a great crash. Now that word there in the original language is mega, mega, megas. We get the word mega from that. It's going to be a mega crash. Now, unfortunately, all of us, every last one of us, have had front row seats to watch a life crash, a great crash. You know, some of us have seen it in family members, maybe a brother or sister or a cousin or someone like that, co-worker, a boss, relations that are close to us. But in our day, because of all the information we have, we're, we're overwhelmed by lives that are built on the sand. Who did not see the Alex Murdoch trial? We saw a life built on sand, what, what the result of it is. We, I mean, we, we see that. There are stories after stories that my heart just breaks over happening in the evangelical Christian community and in churches every day. I'm not going to name names, but sometimes, you know, sometimes those stories aren't rooted in something dramatic and newsworthy. Sometimes they're just over the long haul, a slow unraveling of the, you know, the cumulative uh, impact of somebody practicing a way of life that isn't Jesus' way. And it eventually catches up. The Apostle Paul writes to, to his young protege, Timothy, about that in 1 Timothy 5, 24. He says, the sins of some people are obvious, going ahead of them to judgment. I mean, some people, it just, it, it, it comes out, you know. But then he goes on to say, the sins of others show up later. Now, in some people, you won't see it for a while. From a distance, they're... The house of their life, you know, it always looks sunny in their yard. The sky always looks blue. Very nice looking house, but its foundation is off. And one day, it's going to come. Tragedy will set in, and then regret follows. And then, if that's how you built your life, you can end up stuck living in the prison of the consequences of bad decisions. Now, when you see a life like that, I want to give you another warning. Do not sit in judgment on them. Don't, don't sit in judgment on someone that you see who is there. Instead, take it as a, a sobering warning to your soul that because their life went off the rail, yours can too. I've seen men far far better than me, kind of fall off the rails. None of us 
are immune. None of us are untouchable. All of us are, are, are under the attack of the enemy. And this, this warning from Jesus, while it should, while it should almost stop our hearts, uh, while it should break the grip of apathy, it, it should ask, get us asking kind of probing life questions, not about oh so-and-so that we saw, but about ourselves. And get us to take a long, hard look at the reality of, of, of my obedience to the will of the Father or, or my lack thereof. I need to look in. And I need to look and compare how I'm living my life to the, to the vision for life that Jesus poured out in the Sermon on the Mount. But see, we live in a day and age where, again, we have more information than ever before. We feel overwhelmed by that information. We, we hear that information. It moves us, but then we do nothing about it. And into that culture, that, that world, comes this much-needed wake-up call from Jesus. And friends, that, we got to grab hold of this reality. Information does not equal transformation. Because knowing something is not the same as doing something. And, and Jesus' vision for, for life in the kingdom, it, it's, not just, it's not just a set of ideas that you ascribe to. You know, it, it's a way of life. Some people think that, you know, following Jesus, is, that's an ideology. Friends, it's not, following Jesus is more like a sport than an ideology. You got to throw your whole life, your whole body. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It, it, it's a rhythm. It's something you do with all that you are. And so information is not enough. Now, was, was Jesus a teacher? Was he called a rabbi? Did, did, he, did he teach? Absolutely he did. But if you pay close attention to his teaching, he points out that he didn't come just to cram information in an overstuffed head. He constantly points out that you, you got to do it. You can't, just, you can't just know your Bible. You can't just quote Matthew 5, 6, and 7 or know all the Greek language and all the interpretations of it. All that stuff is great. But Jesus did not come just to inform. He came to transform us into his image. And Jesus says that begins through poeo. We, we got to practice it. And it's interesting that Jesus kind of begins and ends this great sermon with that idea. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says, everyone who practices and teachings the commands that he's about to give will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You get to the end of this, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 24, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be a wise man. And if you don't, not so much. Jesus begins and ends the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of practice. And Jesus just kind of assumes that this, his, his manifesto, if you will, for a kingdom, life in the kingdom of God, it will take you and me a lifetime of practicing to do it. You know, you don't just read Jesus' words that say, do not worry, and go, okay, that's cool, I'll go do that. You, you don't just read the words, do not look upon a woman lustfully, so that, you know, you make her something that gratifies yourself, and just go, check. Got it. Done. It, it, it doesn't happen that way. That, that method 
doesn't work. Now, much of the Western world, and especially much of the Christian church evangelically thinks that that's how transformation happens, but that, friends, is a false formula. It's a formula for catastrophe. This idea that information plus a little inspiration plus a little bit of willpower will bring change doesn't work. Doesn't work, at least not for the long term, you know? I tell you what you do. You try to go get you some good information by an inspirational speaker, and you try to go out that day and try real hard not to worry anymore. Just try real hard not to worry. Or try real hard. I'm not going to be angry anymore. Or try, I'm not going to lust. I'm, I'm not going to do. Friends, it may work on a very small change quotient, on a micro level. I've tried doing that with flossing my teeth, and it doesn't work. Don't tell Asher, he's a dentist. And I know Asher, I, I know the deal is just floss the ones you want to keep, blah, blah, blah. You know, I know that. So I don't know, maybe dentures are my future, I don't know. But that, that formula doesn't even work on something like flossing your teeth. How's it going to work on something so life-altering as what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Friends, does this make sense that that doesn't work? Jesus is calling us to something else. Now, again, please hear me say, willpower, not a bad thing. It's just not enough of a good thing. That's why Jesus says, life in my kingdom, living the good and beautiful life that I came to bring, will, it will require poeo, it will require practice, but not just practice. It will require a practice in biblical community, in the life of God's people. So again, please, when I, when I talk about some of these translation issues from English to, to the original language, please don't hear me say I think it undermines scripture. I don't think it does. I think our English Bible is all we need. But sometimes we need to think deeply about the translation because oftentimes, in, you know, we, unless you grew up in the South, where, you were, we, you know, where we're intellectually superior because we have the word y'all. You know, in, in the New Testament, you read, you read in the New Testament, like in Matthew chapter 13, or Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, and Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, those two verses, you know, you are the, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. That's the word Y-O-U. We could look at that and think it's singular. That's plural. That word is plural. And so when Jesus is using that word, he's saying, y'all, all y'all, the people of God, the people who are going to follow me. You're a salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And so when we read some of these things, that word you that looks singular to us at our first glance often has to do with living these practices out in biblical community among the people of God. And so oftentimes, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, when you see Jesus using that word you, think about it being done in community. So when he's telling us we've got to practice this, you've got to practice, you got to do this in, in community. It, it, that's, that's his call on our life. You, you the church. You River Bluff Church. You the church of Charleston. So Jesus first assumes that you need to practice these things over the course of a lifetime. You need to practice these things in community. Don't try to pull it off by your lonesome. And finally, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, helps us understand that we need the Spirit to empower all of this. And that, this is the, today's big idea. 
If you say, what's this message about? Somebody asks you, what, what'd you, what did he talk about today? This is what I talked about today. That Jesus' life-building plan calls for a lifetime of practice lived in biblical community and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now somebody says, well, Jesus, I mean, Joe, where do you get the Holy Spirit? If you go back and look at the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, remember Jesus taught us how to pray back in Matthew chapter 6. And he told us that when you pray, you should pray, may your kingdom come. You need, we need to pray, God, may your power, where your will is done perfectly in heaven, will summa up there, come down here. That's asking for the Holy Spirit's presence. He said, when you pray, pray, save us from the evil one. Because we're all under the attack of the evil one. That's in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus told us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened. All of those are requests being made to God for the, for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to come. Friends, we need, we need a person and we need a power and we need a presence that's beyond us to live out these practices in community so that we can step into the good and beautiful life that Jesus brings to us in this greatest sermon ever. I have served in local churches for the last 42 years of my life, which means I've been around a lot of Christians, a lot of people seeking to follow Christ. Some who go to church every single Sunday, have for decades, you know, who know their Bible really well. And some of them are just as mean as snakes. Some of them are racked by anxiety. Some of them still have their identity confused, thinking it's about accomplishment or accumulation, rather than finding their identity from the love of God as their father. Still incapable of being present with people right in front of them. Not, not self-aware enough to be honest that they have a shadow side. Not self-aware enough to, in humility, deal with their own blind spots. But they know the book of Romans. But it's doing them no good. It may actually be eroding their soul. Friends, knowing the book of Romans and living the life that Jesus came to bring can be two different things. Two different things. See, you know, I, I, one of the things I found is that people think about this Sunday experience in kind of two different extreme ways. There are some people who undervalue our Sunday gathering and these kind of teaching moments and worship and praise moments. And, you know, somebody will show up, you know, once every couple of months. And every now and then, somebody might say to me, well, I know I haven't been here a while, but, you know, I caught you on the YouTube. Friends, I'm grateful for the technology that we have but but the youtube cannot replace meeting with the living god that only happens as god's people gather now I, again i'm grateful for it for those who are confined because of physical difficulty to their homes who are homebound but i'm not talking to those folks. i'm talking right now to people who just say you know I got better things to do. I just, I just got better things to do. 
you know? And, and even, you know, so that's, that's one group who undervalues this gathering. There's another group that overestimates the power of this gathering, thinking if I just show up here on Sunday morning and, and give an hour and 15 minutes of my life, you know, a, a, a week, that miraculously I'm going to be transformed. That, it's going to take care of it. You know, I'll, I'll show up and I'll, I'll do some worshiping and singing. I might have a, a twinge of an encounter with God, you know. It may make my soul where it ache feel a little bit better. may even be moved to some kind of dramatic repentance or something. But see, Jesus is not going to do all that he needs to do in your life in 15 minutes on the Sundays with little or no partnership from you. He... he he thinks too highly of you to treat you that way. He, he, want, he wants to work with you. He gave you free intelligence that is at the center of your being. It's a will that is shaped by God. And Jesus wants to join you in your biblical community in the power of the Holy Spirit to shape and reshape our lives. He wants to do that. And, you know, it takes a little more than singing and sermons to accomplish that. Those are good, but in and of themselves, they're just not good enough. And, and friends, here's my point. In our culture, where we live in this moment of that low action to information ratio, where it's kind of the default of our hearts, where we're used to coming to church, we might have some kind of feeling, maybe something moves us, but then three days later, we look back and say, uh, what, what was that? I done forgot. You know, what, what, what happened? Friends, when that becomes our normal rhythm of life, then what we read from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 at the close of this message should just shock us. Are you building your life on his teachings or, or, or not? Are you and I, are we doing the will of our Father? Are we trusting his vision for humanity or our own what what are we building on one of the ways that you can ask that question a little differently is this is there something that's been running in the background of your life for a while that the holy spirit kind of put on you a while back maybe yesterday maybe a week ago maybe a month ago maybe a decade ago i don't know and you've never done it you've not done it yet you know are, are are you trying to you know if you're thinking you know I, I, I'm, I'm, I show up every week I'm not doing those things I know that but I don't understand why I'm still stuck maybe that's why because that thing that the Holy Spirit moved you to do you didn't poeo it you didn't put it into practice for, for instance are you forgiving as you have been forgiven by Jesus? Are you practicing that at all? Is there something the Spirit of God has prompted you to do that you've, you've not done? You know, maybe, maybe somewhere in your life. Maybe, maybe it was while you were on your way to work. And the Holy Spirit just spoke and said, make restitution to that person. Or maybe said apologize to that person or confess that sin or get in a small group or find a, a Christian counselor, do something to do that's just been running in the background of your life. Are you putting it into practice or is it just a memory 
Or is it just a journal log entry? Friends, this is Jesus' teaching. And this warning should shake us to our core and wake us up to ask the question, am I putting it into practice? Jesus said, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine, puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains come down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. And that's how Jesus ends that sermon. Greatest sermon ever preached. He just ends it right there. He doesn't give an invitation in a formal way. He just, he just leaves it hanging out there on the hill that day. Just that, that, that kind of haunting question. He didn't speak it, but he leaves it with the crowd. He says, what are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? He just, he, he kind of leaves it. And I just imagine him walking off the mountain. It's kind of like a mic drop moment. And he just walks away. And he goes down into the valley. And he just leaves it hanging out there. What are you building your life on? And that's hanging here today. It's, it's the same haunting question. What are you in your season of your life, where you are right now, whether you are 15 or 50, whether you are 27 or 77, right now in this season of your life, what are you building your life on? Is it, is it your, your kids or your grandkids? Is it your career? Is it your spouse? Is it just fill in the blank? Is it the next college, you know, college you want to get in? What, what is it that you're building your life on? Because anything less than Jesus and his vision for the good and beautiful life leaves you positioned for that great crash. And Jesus loves you too much to not warn you and give you a way, a better way to live because he wants better for you. Let's pray. Lord, we come in this moment. Encountering that haunting question that you left for those on the hill that day. That same question that was hanging out on that mountain 2,000 years ago is hanging out in this room today. What are we building our life on? Is it on your teachings, Jesus? Is it on your way of living? Is it on your vision for human thriving and flourishing? Or is it the way of the world? The way of our flesh? The way that leads to destruction? Maybe you're here today, and for the very first time, it, it connected with your heart that Jesus loves you so much that he 
He has a better way than the way of the world for you. The way that kind of wrecks your soul most days. And Jesus said at the beginning of his message, that great sermon, anyone, anyone who would repent, which just means to change the way you've thought about life and accept the way Jesus teaches life really is, if you would repent and believe, believe that Jesus, the smartest person to ever live, wisest man who ever taught, and that he's the son of God, that he gives you a better way. If you would believe that, Jesus said, you'll be saved. You can enter life in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus gives us this great sermon on how to live that life to its fullest, the good and beautiful life. And you can have that today. All you've got to do is say, Jesus, I choose you. I choose your way. You can do it right there, right, right where you're at. Jesus, I choose your way for life. I've tried it my own way. I've tried it the world's way. Jesus, I'm coming to give my life to you, to follow you, to practice your way for living, to do it in a community of believers, empowered by your spirit, God. Come into my life. Empower me. Jesus said he'll do that. But most of us here today, most of us, we just need to let the words of Jesus stop our hearts once again. Capture our attention. Pull us out of apathy. Because we live in that world where it's just so easy not to do something about, about words we hear. Jesus, move us today to take that step. Maybe it's a step we've taken a, a thousand times before, but take it again that we're going to follow you. We're going to poeo. We are going to put into practice your teachings in every area of our life for the rest of our days so that we might become more like you and bring you great glory and experience the goodness you have for us. So we come. We come now, Jesus. Thank you for that lingering question that blesses us when we let it. Are we building our life on you?